Hello, my name is Michael Albert, and this is the podcast Revolution Z, Life After Capitalism. This is the ninth episode, and it's titled Vision, Disputing Balanced Jobs. Before we start, I want to make a strenuous appeal. To continue with this podcast, to enlarge it, to make it three episodes a week, to have guests, to have interactions with listeners, and then finally to go to video, I need some help. I need people to, to listen, to subscribe, and I need people to support. And the way you do that, or the way you can do that if you choose to, is at the site called Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, www.patreon.com slash Revolution Z. I hope you'll take a look at that. Now, to recap what we've done, we've made a case for the importance of vision and strategy. We've talked about remuneration. We've talked about decision-making. In the former case, we arrived at the possibility that it would be a good idea to have people get income for how long they work, for how hard they work, and for the onerousness of the conditions under which they work. In the second case, regarding decision-making, we arrived at the idea that a desirable way to to arrive at decisions, to make decisions, is to have self-management, people having a say in decisions in proportion to the degree that they're affected by them. This last uh, pursuit, self-management, led us to a problem that had to be dealt with. It was the vision of labor. To eliminate the class hierarchy of empowered employees bossing disempowered employees, which would obviously violate the notion that everybody should be uh, equally involved in self-management, equally prepared and ready to express themselves about uh, decisions that were to be made that were to affect them, uh, we, we realized, and this is just in our last episode of Revolution Z, that we had to apportion tasks in a balanced way. We had to balance for empowerment effects. It had to be the case that the work that we do, and prior to that, the schooling that we get and the upbringing that we get, but that the work that we do, the situation we have inside of a workplace, would not make it impossible for us or nearly impossible for us to participate in decisions and would not grant some much greater facility for participating in decisions. Instead of 20% of the workforce monopolizing tasks that give them skills and social ties, information and confidence, all essential to making good decisions, and 80% enduring tasks that de-skill them, that isolate them, that uninform them, and that shatter their confidence such that they are neither prepared to make decisions nor inclined to participate in decision-making, Each worker needs to do a mix of tasks such that all workers are prepared by their situations to participate in self-managed decision-making. In a hospital, instead of having doctors and surgeons on the one hand and people who clean bedpans or do other manual tasks that uh, are basically uh, deadening to their capacity to make decisions, on the other hand, we divide up the tasks differently. We have a workforce, all of whom have jobs that have a balanced mix of responsibilities so that they can each participate in a workers' council that makes decisions. Same thing in any other form of business, form of organization, form of, form of workplace. If we're manufacturing something, if we're um, uh, providing a service, 
we don't have 20% who call all the shots, who make all the decisions, who occupy offices and who have uh, information flow to them and who interact with others, all in ways conducive to being able to make decisions, and 80% involved in that workplace doing rote tasks, repetitive tasks, largely separated from other people in the workplace, largely isolated from relevant information, and basically over time made uh, disinclined to participate in decisions and unprepared to participate in decisions. So I claim that it's virtually beyond dispute that to have equitable self-managed work for all, we can't have a coordinator class, people who are monopolize empowered, uh, empowering tasks operating above a working class, people who do mostly rote and obedient tasks, the former taking more income, the former deciding outcomes, and the latter basically obeying. Instead, to have a worthy economy, however large scale and difficult it may be to imagine, we must replace the corporate division of labor with jobs balanced to have comparable empowerment effects on every employee. Now, however, we have to consider even if that is true, even if it's essential that we get rid of that hierarchy of empowerment effects inside of a workplace in order to have self-management, what if opting for balanced job complexes is an unworkable or destructive choice? Even if it's necessary in order to get self-management, what if its impact upon people, upon the, the whole workplace as a whole, is so detrimental that <clears throat> it outweighs that? What if we need balanced job complexes to attain equity and self-management? But at the same time, having balanced job complexes would cause damage even exceeding that of inequity and coordinator class rule. In that case, we would have to avoid disaster, which means we would have to forego the change. And that is exactly what the Centers for Balancing Jobs for Empowerment assert. It is exactly what the claim that there is no alternative means. Not that there is nothing else, but that there is nothing else that is better. Changes made to improve things will wind up making things worse. Capitalism has flaws, even horrible ones, but every other system is worse. That's the mantra that says there is no alternative. The critic's claim is, therefore, that while balancing jobs for empowerment effects may be necessary to escape some serious ills, like inequity and like class rule, doing it would impose even worse ills, so we shouldn't do it. Are the critics correct? That's what we have to investigate now. Here are their claims and my reactions. First, Critics rightly point out that if everyone has to do a mix of empowering and also of disempowering tasks, then excellent brain surgeons, for example, would have to spend some time away from doing excellent brain surgeries to instead clean patients' rooms or change their bedpans or do some other tasks uh, that are of, of a less empowering effect to balance their job complexes. They then also correctly add that the time taken from a surgeon's surgical work will incur lost output from that surgeon. The value of Joe, of Joe the surgeon cleaning a patient's room is vastly less than the value of Joe the surgeon saving that patient's life. Finally, extrapolating that observation to other jobs, the critic says balancing jobs for empowerment will lose too much valuable product to be acceptable. How do we answer that? Our answer is that we can't only consider Joe's work or even the work of all members of the coordinator class. It is true, the critic is correct, 
that Joe's contribution to society's social product and also the total of all contributions of all members of the current coordinator class will decline if they have to spend some time doing rote, repetitive, or otherwise disempowering tasks. However, it is also true that this loss will be more than offset by society getting more social product, more value, from the other 80% of the population who would no longer have their most productive potentials curtailed, but would instead have them liberated and utilized. In other words, for every Joe who contributes somewhat less due to doing a fair share of disempowering tasks, there would be four people contributing somewhat more than they did before due to having better education and training, more confidence, and jobs drawing on and enlarging their capacities. Overall, if we divide up tasks to balance jobs for empowerment, by that means we will not only create conditions facilitating rather than subverting equity and self-management, we will also unleash more creativity and value in society from those who were previously subordinate. And we will also create strong pressures for reducing the number of disempowering tasks and enlarging the number of, empower of empowering tasks. Okay, that answer sounds pretty good but critics are not swayed so easily. What the hell are you talking about, they typically rejoin. The 80% who now do disempowering work are incapable of much more. Even four of them, freed from some rote work and better educated and more confident, won't be able to make up for the tasks I have to forego. The four won't be able to do my tasks well. In fact, the critic goes on, it isn't just that the four won't be able to do empowering tasks well enough to make up for lost output due to surgeons, engineers, and others having to do less of their most valuable tasks. Even with more schooling and training, they will be unable to do their new empowering tasks at all, so society will suffer catastrophic incapacity. Is that true? To be fair, I have to acknowledge that if 80% are in fact incapable of doing sufficient empowering tasks to even come close to making up for the lost output from 20% doctors, engineers, etc. during their share of disempowering work, or even worse, if they are literally so poor at empowering tasks that they would make a mess of them, then the critics are correct. Balancing jobs for empowerment would in that case be well-intentioned but ill-conceived. So are the critics right? First, we have to realize we are not talking about 80% moving from having endured impoverished living conditions, debilitating cultural messages, stultifying education, designed to teach taking orders and enduring boredom, and years of cleaning bedpans to overnight conducting surgery. That's ridiculous. And we're not talking about moving from all of that and working on an assembly line to overnight conceiving operational relations at work. We are instead talking about everyone growing up in families with ample income, everyone enjoying good schooling, and everyone then doing work that empowers them from the first to the last day of their working lives. So it turns out a critic is really saying that 80% of humanity is intrinsically incapable of more than passively obeying the will of others. 80% wind up in rote and repetitive jobs because that is all they can do. And the critics aren't just saying that a particular person can't do surgery well, which would be true of huge numbers of people, including me and probably the critic too. The critic says everyone in the 80% can't do any empowering work well. There are no empowering tasks to balance every job suitably for each of 80% of all employees. 
People wind up in the working class, in this view, and not in the coordinator class, because regardless of people's very different living conditions as children, regardless of different quality of schooling, and regardless of different tasks during their entire working lives, no changes in any of that would leave those in the 80% able to do any balanced job well. Put so boldly, is this even a little bit credible? A first response is to point out that the effects of childhood family income being seriously lower, of education being vastly worse, and of conditions on the job being stultifying are all quite consistent with claiming that the negative effect of these circumstances disempowers 80% of each new generation into becoming working-class adults and then entrenches them into their intended subordination ever more strongly every day they are on the job. But no, the critic says that I have it backwards. The problem isn't that circumstances create lack of means and inclination. The problem is that the people's genetic endowment makes them incapable. For the critic, people are born unable to do empowering tasks, and then family, school, and work just make the best of their limits, rather than imposing the limits on them. Here is my response to the now fully elaborated criticism. I say it superficially fits the fact that 80% don't do empowering tasks, but the causality is not from genetic endowment to outcome, but rather from conditions of life and then of work to outcome. This face-off of opposed interpretations of the cause of hierarchical performance by contending constituencies is not, I should like to add, something new. We have seen it often. Imagine it is 70 years ago. All surgeons in the country are assembled into a massive stadium. A noted commentator looks around and sees, rounding off the minor exceptions, no women and no blacks. He deduces that women and blacks are simply incapable of doing surgery well, or even without horrific results. It is simple logic. There are no five-year-old surgeons in the stadium either. The obvious explanation for five-year-olds being absent is that five-year-olds can't do it. The equally obvious explanation, the critic says, of why women and blacks are absent is that women and blacks can't do it. What's more, outside the stadium, many women and many blacks, sadly, in their deepest beliefs, 70 years ago, agreed. Cultural messages ceaselessly trumpeted their inadequacy. Relative situations, seen in every direction, seemed to bear it out. Accepting the explanation, whether believing it or not, was a lot easier and a lot safer than fighting against it. But then along came the civil rights movement, and along came the women's movement. Seventy years later, save for the most jaundiced and self-deluding defenders of past injustice, the explanation has reversed. Why? It's for the simple reason that 70 years later, women and blacks are doing surgery and other empowered work in such high numbers that it is obvious that there was never a genetic impediment. Genes haven't changed over the last 70 years. There was instead social subjugation, and activism has reduced that over the last 70 years. Sadly, we are still waiting for a movement of working people that attains the level of power and of self-awareness at challenging and reducing classism as the movements that have reduced sexism and racism have attained in the past seven decades. But isn't it obvious for those not defending or rationalizing the hierarchical circumstances, power, and income advantages of the coordinator class of highly empowered employees that among the 80%, virtually everyone can do a mix of empowering and disempowering tasks rather than only doing disempowering tasks. This doesn't say what is obviously false and unnecessary. It doesn't say that everyone is the same 
or that everyone can be a genius surgeon, genius musician, or genius anything. Some can, some can't. Just like there was never a claim that every woman or every black with proper background and training could do what the most accomplished white man in some discipline did, any more than every other white man can do what the most accomplished white man does. It instead says that every person who will work in the economy is, with desirable background and training, able to do a mix of some empowering and some disempowering tasks that prepare them to participate in decision-making comparably to all other people working in the economy. I doubt that absolute proof that convinces everyone who disagrees with this can exist before we see this result in practice. Just as there was no absolute proof convincing all racists and all sexists that women or blacks could do empowering tasks before we could see it. But I do think that while doubting workers' potentials occurs sometimes due to an honest, carefully considered mistake, most often it occurs due to echoing what coordinator class dominated culture, coordinator class defined education, coordinator class managed economic life, and the presumed inevitable hierarchy enforcing corporate division of labor constantly tell everyone. It is debilitating class hierarchy that restricts potential. It is not limited potentials that create debilitating class hierarchy. If a society has 20% jobs that are empowering and 80% that are disempowering, it needs a workforce that fits. If all workers expected and were prepared for dignity, respect, and an appropriate degree of control over their circumstances and efforts, and then they entered the economy, and four-fifths of them got none of what they had expected, there would be incredible rebellion against current relations. To avoid that rebellion, society needs to produce a workforce 80% of which expects subordination and even feels that it deserves it. And that means schools, culture, and home life need to educate, entertain, and even nurture 80% of each new generation to expect subordination until we replace the corporate division of labor with balanced jobs. Here's John Lennon providing a poetic enunciation of essentially the same message we have offered today. Go online or to your own music collection and give it a listen. His song is Working Class Hero. He sings... As soon as you're born, they make you feel small, by giving you no time instead of it all. Till the pain is so big you feel nothing at all, a working-class hero is something to be. A working-class hero is something to be. They hurt you at home and they hit you at school. They hate you if you're clever and they despise a fool. Till you're so fucking crazy you can't follow their rules, a working-class hero is something to be. A working-class hero is something to be. When they've tortured and scared you for 20-odd years, then they expect you to pick a career. When you can't really function, you're so full of fear, a working-class hero is something to be. A working-class hero is something to be. Keep you doped with religion and sex and TV, and you think you're so clever and classless and free, but you're still fucking peasants as far as I can see. A working-class hero is something to be. A working-class hero is something to be. There's room at the top they're telling you still, but first you must learn how to smile as you kill. If you want to be like the folks on the hill, a working-class hero is something to be. A working-class hero is something to be. I would like to close with just one more example. I know I said that there has to be a significant period of transition for workers to become comfortable and able to do a large share of empowering tasks, and I would bet everyone took that as obvious. But is it really so obvious? I was in Argentina visiting a glass factory where the workers had taken over and the owner had left, actually the owner left, precipitating the workers taking over. 
And the managers left too. And I was talking to a woman who was in charge of doing the books, doing the finances in this, in this glass factory. I asked her what she had been doing before, and she described a job of handling the, the I don't even remember what you call the, the furnace, but handling the furnace, uh, melting the glass preparatory to its being molded. And she described how she would spend eight, nine hours a day um, at this furnace in incredible heat, standing the whole time and dealing with the situation. Now she was doing the work, the books. She was, she was like the accountant for the, for the workplace. I asked her how she wound up doing the books. And she said that at an early meeting of the assembly of all the workers, um, it was determined that somebody had to do it. And people asked if anybody would volunteer, and nobody was. And she finally decided to volunteer, and she did. So she wound up in the position. I then asked her what was the hardest thing that she had to learn, and she was a little shy about it and didn't want to answer that question. So I said, well, okay, was it to learn the, the concepts of accounting, to, to learn what, it, what you had to keep track of and what you had to be aware of? She said, no. I said, well, was it to learn the software that you had to use uh, during the, the work of accounting? She said, no. And I said, well, was it to, to learn how to do the various manipulations? No. And at this point, I was getting a little frustrated. And I said, well, please, tell me, tell me what it was that was the hardest thing to learn in the, in the step from doing the rote job in front of that furnace to sitting here at the desk and doing the finances. And she paused and she said, well, first I had to learn to read. I, I found that a little difficult to comprehend. But, but clearly what she was saying was that she had been a working class person on the job and before the job, that she didn't know how to read well, and that she had to learn preparatory to being able to handle the books and the finances and the software. So she did that. And so much for the idea that working people can't master jobs that involve uh, more, more conceptual aspects, aspects that they are not familiar with at the outset, and aspects that empower them. However, the factory had kept the old division of labor. So now this incredible woman was doing the finances, but was no longer doing any of the other rote work. And the result of that was that as remarkable as she was, she was becoming coordinator class. Because of her position, she had to sort of give herself an explanation of, of why her circumstances were better than all of her prior workmates. And the explanation that... that was acceptable, that was understandable, and that was clear was that she was better. And so she began to feel that. And so she, along with the others who filled coordinator class slots, began to see themselves as more deserving. And so the old crap came back in the factory. It's important to notice that the condition of participation, of solidarity, of self-management, and of equity that is achieved inside of a factory doesn't just affect say, one woman in that one workplace, or the whole workforce there, but really society as a whole, because everyone is affected both at work and in the rest of their lives as well, and similarly for all other workplaces as well. Eighty percent of the populations become participants. 
80% of the population become their full selves. If you like the idea of exploring possibilities for life after capitalism, if you want not only more of that, but more about the means of attaining those possibilities, if you want it from me, but also from guests, and if you would like interaction with audience as well, I very much hope you will take a moment to visit www.patreon.com slash revolutionz, where you can sign on to help make it happen. Without help, it won't happen. With help, it will. Any level of aid, every level of aid matters. This is Michael Albert, hoping these episodes are useful and pledging to keep improving delivery and content, signing off for Revolution Z. Until next time.